Money FM 89.3, the best of your money. Market View on Money FM 89.3. Asia Pacific stocks are trading mixed this morning with Australia leading the way up by 0.28%. Japan is up by 0.13% and Korea is down by 0.31%. Now last Friday on Wall Street, the major averages closed the little changed after rebounding from earlier losses and that's also notching their second straight positive week. The Dow Jones Industrial Average was 0.1% higher at 34,329 points. The S&P declined 0.1% to end off at 4,076 points, while the Nasdaq Composite dipped 0.2% to finish off at 11,461 points. But it's worth noting that the stocks also dipped after the release of the labour on Friday, which showed that payrolls rose by 263,000 in November. Now that's bigger than again than the 200,000 increase expected by economists. And average hourly earnings also came in below expectations. That's jumping 0.6%. That's compared with the prior month and 5.1% against the same month a year ago. The unemployment rate held steady at 3.7%. And that was the final monthly employment report by the Fed's two-day meeting that's going to be happening next week on December 13th to 14th, in which the central bank is expected to slow down to a 50 basis point interest rate hike from their 75 basis point hikes that's seen in recent months. So that's something that we'll be tracking very closely. Now let's bring in Ryan Huang to get his analysis of the latest headlines. Good morning, Ryan. How was your weekend? Uh, It was great, Dan. I had a restful weekend. How about you? Not too bad. For myself, I had a pretty restful weekend as well. Now, Ryan, let's start off with the latest OPEC Plus meeting that happened over the weekend. And members of the OPEC Plus have agreed to stay on course on the output policy ahead of a pending ban from the European Union on Russian crude. And that means the the reduction of the oil production remains at 2 million barrels per day, or about 2% of Mm. the world demand. So while energy analysts had expected OPEC Plus to consider fresh supporting production cuts ahead of a possible double blow to Russian oil revenues, why have they decided to stick to the existing policy then? Yeah, every few months or so, we get this routine meeting by OPEC and its allies to decide where it needs to go with its production output. And this influences prices to some extent. And when you look at prices in the past year, we have started to see it moderate somewhat because of all the issues around the gloomier demand outlook, the risk of a recession, and of course what's playing out in China with COVID-19. That mm. has really weighed on the demand picture. So that is something that has weighed on prices and OPEC in recent times have been thinking maybe they want to get higher prices by cutting supply so that demand supply equation is tighter. So if you look at what's been playing out in the past few weeks, they had some justification to consider deeper cuts. So that was one of the expectations going into the meeting. But coming out of the meeting, they decided to stay put, status quo. So sticking to the earlier meeting's decision to cut by just 2 million barrels. Mm. So that is something I think they had to take on board with the uh, various news happenings around the world, including what's happening in China over the weekend, which in short, we are seeing a potential reopening soon because of all the signs that are now coming forth with the easing of measures. That's one. And also, they have to take into account the volatility of what's playing out with Russia. The Russian price cap, which 
has been agreed by the G7 countries. They were talking about it for quite some time in the past few months. Finally, mm. today is when the price cap kicks in. $60 per barrel for Russian oil. So bear in mind, Russian oil is priced differently right now. It's around $50 plus. Mm. WTI and Brent is around 80 ish So if you look at where we are right now, there is still some room for Russian oil prices to go up further before it hits the price cap. But effectively, anyone cannot pay above $60 um, without having to go through a lot of logistical issues. For example, you can't get insurance, you can't get ships to ship, oil if these countries or companies want to stick with the G7 mandate. But of course, that is where the catch is, if they want to stick to the mandate. If you're China, India, or anyone else who does not care about the mandate, then you can just go ahead and buy Russian oil. So that is where the catch is. You mm. have the mechanism for this price cap yet to be really ironed out. Um, but it does look like we could see some pressure upwards for oil prices and that is what is playing out right now in the morning. Mm. Prices of oil just inching up further. Right. But how effective do you think will this cap be in constraining the commodity revenues from the Kremlin? Especially since China and India are, like what you've mentioned, the major buyers of Russian oil. And they've benefited a lot from the discounted mm. rate offered by Moscow. Right? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be good news for anyone else besides the G7 to buy oil because mm. it is cheaper. In that sense, Russia has no one else to turn to besides them. So they can have more negotiating power. Russia itself has come to say they would rather cut production than to sell those barrels for that what they deem to be lower than deserved prices. So mm. Russia may also do their own thing and just say, hey, I will just not make oil for now and maybe ride it out. They can afford to do that to some extent. So in terms of effectiveness, mm. it is going to be quite tough and the amount of pain that the G7 and other economies are willing to bear is also something that will need to be watched because they can only, I imagine, bear with higher energy prices for a certain length of time before you get that bout of um, unrest or instability with strikes because of cost pressures. Right. So th it is a balancing act mm. for all of them. It's to see who has a greater pain tolerance. Mm. Right. So now, Ryan, let's shift our attention now to the shipping industry. And according to the CNBC supply chain heat map, the US demand in China's manufacturing industry has reportedly dropped sharply as the country continues to grapple with COVID-19 lockdowns. So can you talk to us about this report and what does this suggest about their dependence on trade with China? Yeah, so in short, it is all about how growth is moderating. And we've seen that play out in many places, layoffs in some cases, in some tech sectors and tech companies. Um, also, all that talk about a recession, that seems to be playing out right now in some places, especially with what's the demand for imports from China to the US. And that has played out in the form of how the orders from China are starting to drop. And you point mm. out 40%. So much so that you might be aware that um, during the Lunar New Year break, typically these Chinese factories shut down for yep. everyone to go home to their hometowns. And now, the demand has dropped so much that these Chinese factories are shutting down two weeks earlier than usual wow. because there's just not enough business to go around. Mm. So that's what it has come down to. Uh, and this is also starting to see... Um, a lot of uh, disruptions to 
ships because many ships are now unwilling to sail without a full load. So that means they will just wait around for longer at the ports before sailing. And this is affecting many companies in the form of delays. That The shipments that typically come during a certain window will just have to be delayed for a bit longer because those ships are just not coming on the usual routine. Mm. So that is what's playing out and is possibly going to uh, result in a lot of um, issues for supply chains, for shops, managing their retail inventory. And of course, this is a lead up to the holiday season as well. So yeah. it is possibly going to be a few headaches for the entire industry. Right. And But on a brighter note, trade data analysed by Project 44, they indicated that Europe to US route is one of the possibly most surprising and certainly most significant developments since two years ago. So what exactly is driving this US and EU trade boom and what does this shift mean for China then? Mm, yeah, it's interesting when you look at the trade data, US imports from Asia plunged in October to their lowest levels in 20 months. Mm. Uh, and then you talk about a EU-US uh, trade boom. So you have a few uh, moving parts here. One is how the recent restrictions around COVID-19 has resulted in disruptions to the supply chain in China. You might remember Apple um, in the mix one of the biggest factories in China had to go through a bit of a lockdown and that meant 6 million iPhones potentially being lost in terms of production and of course that means lost revenue. Mm. So that is something I think a lot of manufacturers are starting to sit up and take notice in terms of how they plan their supply chains and maybe shifting it closer to home, sometimes maybe in Europe or maybe back to the US. So that is what we could see um, starting to play out that rotation or pivoting away from China when it comes to supply chains. Maybe in time to come, we could see less reliance in China when it comes to these um, factories. Mm, dark times ahead for China at least. So let's stick to China and talk about their COVID situation then. And, you know, the, the Chinese authorities have accelerated the shift towards reopening the economy with Shanghai and Hangzhou easing some COVID restrictions. So walk us through some of the latest moves by China to ease restrictions and what led them to transition away from their containment measures, Ryan? Yeah, we've seen a lot of speculation in the past few weeks about how China might move away from the current situation of restrictions towards a reopening picture. And in recent days, we've seen that really come through. More clarity uh, and more moves to pivot mm. away. The latest comes from Shanghai and Hangzhou, who have eased some COVID restrictions. And this is just one week after we saw those protests spilling over into the streets, mm. the showdowns between the public and security officers um, and maybe that was a factor being considered mm. uh, if you look at the type of moves typically you get PCR testing required when you go to public venues outdoors that is no longer required so going to the parks you don't need it going onto public transport you don't need it as well in Shanghai and Hangzhou so that is something of a bit of a relief I imagine for many of these um, Chinese citizens so authorities say these measures will continue to be optimized and adjusted in national policy and the situation. 
Hangzhou, Hangzhou, which is home to tech giant Alibaba and many other Chinese tech companies, hmm. have also dropped testing requirements. So that's going to be good news for those who work in the factories and, of course, the wider business backdrop. So activity there is going to take one step closer back to normal. Mm. And Hangzhou and Shanghai are joining other cities as well in lifting these restrictions. Beijing, Shenzhen, Guangzhou have all been relaxing curbs in recent days. And going by reports, we've seen a sharp drop in the number of testing booths in some cities. That has resulted in some long queues, but I think that's a reflection as well as to how they are starting to step back from testing. So it is a good sign to see this happening, the easing of restrictions. But bear in mind, case numbers are still quite, well, elevated when it comes mm. to where China standards are. So that's going to be something to watch out for to see how much more they are willing to go when it comes to easing. But in terms of market reactions, we have seen quite a um, relief rally of sorts mm. in the past month in November the Hang Seng China Enterprises Index rallied 29%. Wow. That was its best month since 2003. That is uh, roughly 16 years. Mm. Well, that's certainly very, very good news. And uh, good to hear that uh, perhaps the, it's like what you've mentioned, the demonstrations may have had an effect on the way the government are choosing to stick to their regulations. Now, back at home, we're currently 19 minutes into the local trading day and yesterday and last week, the Straits Times Index closed lower by 1.02% to end off at 3,259 points. Ryan, how is the SDI performing today? All right, so we are seeing the Straits Times Index above break even by 0.2%. And this is with the STI trading right now at 3,265. So quite reflective of what's going on around the region. Mm. A rather subdued picture, not a lot of conviction behind the direction or the magnitude of the markets this morning. So a lot of wait and seeing as we wait for what's happening in China to play out. Also, how the price caps around Russian oil will play out. And of course, we head into the FOMC meeting in around next week with the backdrop of the hotter-than-expected jobs data that you talked about earlier. Mm. So that is going to add more noise to where rates might go, possibly higher for longer. Mm. And if you look at what's playing out for the 30 constituents for the STI, it's just slightly more green than red right now. At the bottom, we have... Johnny Matheson Holdings and Hong Kong Land, both down at least 1%, followed by Yangjiang Shipbuilding. The banks are all underwater, led by OCBC, just slightly down by 0.3%. Mm. And at the top of the table, they refund International up 3.5%, followed by Capital DC REIT up 2.2%, and Taibev is in the green by 1.6%, and Taibev trading comp. Uh, come dividend and distribution today. Mm. All right, now, Market View is never done without a game of up or down. We're going to play this game. If you're regular on this show, you'd be fami- familiar with it. And I'll pick a stock or topic and you guess whether it's an up or down. Ryan, are you ready? Let's go, Dan. Let's go with the first one, Chip Ing Sing. All right, Chip Ing Sing is going to be an up for me. Mm. And this is with Chip Ing Sing's conditional cash offer. Just getting a bit sweeter. So mm. the offerer, Celine Tang and her husband, Gordon Tang, have upped to a final price, has been up to a final price of 
75 cents per share from 72 cents per share. So this is good news for those who are looking to take it up. Yes, this is uh, definitely a very attractive exit for and it's a good take-up for a lot of investors as well. So that's going to be an up for me. Now, next on the list, we've got MS Holdings. All right, another company that is going to be taken off the SGX is mm. MS Holdings. You might be familiar with their cranes, most cranes around the construction sites. So this is going to be, um, I'll go with a down. It is, after all, exiting from the SGX. Mm. Um, but for investors, maybe it's a good chance to exit as well. So you've got a voluntary unconditional cash offer by the executive chairman, Ng Jui Hua, to privatize the company at $0.07 cents per share. So with that happening in October, that has seen MS Holdings losing its free float, which is one of the requirements to be listed. So it mm. is going to have to exit. Yeah, it's definitely going to be down for me as well. I mean, even though the offer price still represents a 16.7% premium over the counter on August 26th of the closing price at $0.06. Cents. Now, finally, Ryan, S-Reads. I'm going with up for S-Reads. So for November, they rebounded 6%. If you look at the IHS Street Index, so that's a bit of a recovery and mm. it has outperformed the FTSE APRA NARI Developed Index, which gained just 3.5%. So interest rates and economic growth in key Asian markets continue to drive growth for S REITs. All right. Thank you so much, Ryan. And that's all we have for today's market view. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A W E D I O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.